This episode is brought to you by Malomo. Malomo offers Shopify and Klaviyo customers the tools to turn shipping from a cost center into a profitable marketing channel through branded shipment emails and order tracking pages. Stay tuned for a special offer for Stairway to CEO listeners later in the show. This episode is brought to you by Nosto, the world's leading commerce experience platform. Nosto enables personalized shopping experiences without the need for IT resources or a long implementation process. Stay tuned for a special offer exclusively for Stairway to CEO listeners later in the show. This episode is brought to you by Cogsy. Cogsy helps modern brands make smarter inventory purchasing decisions that optimize their working capital and frees up cash to fund growth and marketing initiatives. Stay tuned for a special offer for Stairway to CEO listeners later in the show. everyone. Welcome to the Stairway to CEO podcast brought to you by Future Commerce. I'm your host, Lee Green, and it's my mission to bring you a real, honest, and unfiltered interview with top business leaders from all walks of life. We'll talk about their climb to the top, their stumbles along the way, and the steps they took to get them to where they are. So tune in to get inspired, listen to some real talk, and enjoy the show. Welcome to episode 70 of the Stairway to CEO podcast. I'm your host, Lee Green, and today I spoke with Sabina Lada, the founder and CEO of Doe. Doe is a functional foods brand that believes good-for-you products should taste good. Made with high-quality ingredients and enhanced with added boosts of supplements, their products are all vegan, gluten-free, and taste delicious. In this episode, Sabina shares with us her journey from growing up in Texas as a first-generation American to building the venture studio known as Launchpad at M13 in Los Angeles, to starting her own company, Doe, on Instagram by taking orders via direct message and accepting payments over Venmo. If you're interested in trying out some of the amazing Doe products you will hear about here on the show, we have a very special promo code for you. Just go to eatdoe.com. That's eat, D-E-U-X.com, and use the code CEO20 to get 20% off. If you like what you're hearing on the Stairway to CEO podcast, don't forget to click subscribe to get updates on our new episode releases happening every Tuesday morning. Until then, we hope you enjoy this episode. Hi, Sabina. Thanks so much for being on the show today. I'm really excited to hear your story in building dough. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm so excited to be here. <laughs> so let's hear about your background. I know we met at an event in LA for M13 way back. I don't even know what year that was, but um, I'm excited to learn more about you and, you know, hear your background. Where are you from originally? Um, I'm from a small town in Texas called Bliss. You probably haven't heard of it. Um, there's pretty much just football in, in that town. I mean, like, have you seen Friday Night Lights? No. Uh, yeah, it's it's pretty much football, and um, that's it, because it's a population, call it 40,000, maybe. Wow. So what did your parents do? Did you have siblings? What was it like growing up? Yeah, my parents are, so I'm a, a first-generation American. My parents are immigrants. Um, so my dad 
moved here in the 70s. Um, and he, you know, was kind of an entrepreneur by force, not not because he wanted to be, um, but because he didn't know what else to do and didn't have an American education. So um, when he first moved here, he moved to Chicago and was a taxi driver. Um, and mom moved here for nursing school. So she also moved here in the 70s. They actually met in the States, which is a little um, non-traditional for South Asian couples. Um, but she also moved to Chicago, went to nursing school and was a nurse and is retired now. Wow. And so did you kind of see your dad as an entrepreneur and did you want to be an entrepreneur as a kid or what did you want to be when you grew up? Yeah, it's funny. Because he, he was an entrepreneur because he had to be, and I am an entrepreneur because I get to be. And so it's kind of a different situation that, that we're in. Um, so he, he, you know, was a taxi driver and then he worked in, you know, delis, he worked in gas stations. And then finally, like the pinnacle of his career was getting to gas station. Like, I remember that being the biggest deal of like, that was his, right. And that was his, um, kind of first real, if you want to call it a founder experience, um, and I never, I never saw like the glamorous parts of entrepreneurship. So I think now we see a lot of, you know, the glamorized founders and, you know, raising capital and venture capital. And it, it's kind of um, glorified a little bit, mm -hmm. which it is. It's an experience. That's why I say I get to be an entrepreneur. I love it. Um, but the way I grew up, it wasn't, it just wasn't stable. So I didn't originally think I would ever be an entrepreneur. I thought, you know, that's what you do when you um, kind of don't have something else to do, don't have a great education, or you don't have kind of a quote unquote professional career. Um, it was only when I worked in, in big companies and I was kind of a misfit at big companies when I realized like, oh, okay, maybe I have this same entrepreneurial spirit that my, that my dad had. <laughs> Do you remember a specific moment where you were working and realizing, looking around the room, wait a minute, I don't know if I fit in here. So I grew up on the standard American diet and I, you know, ate Kraft mac and cheese for dinner and Oreos for breakfast. And, um, I, you know, didn't grow up. My, my parents were immigrants, so we weren't super educated on what healthy food was and you know why we needed to eat healthy um we're much more aware now i think but um as i mentioned there's we didn't you know we weren't eating kale like we weren't that wasn't a part of of my upbringing and yeah. so um i was pretty i was pretty self-taught i would say in nutrition and i didn't start kind of caring or learning about it until college um so you know at my first job at Frito-Lay, I had a sales goal. I mean, I was on the marketing team, but I had a sales goal of selling more pounds of potato chips per person um, in the United States. At the same time, I was learning about nutrition. I was learning about wellness. I had a blog before blogs were cool called Skinny Lately, where I would try a bunch of new health and wellness trends and I would tell all my friends about it. So whether that was like cryotherapy um, or, you know, juice cleanses back when juice cleanses were a thing, it just was completely at odds with what I was doing at work. So I was trying to increase the number of pounds of potato chips sold per person and at Meanwhile, work. And going was, on juice cleanses. Mm -hmm. <laughs> hey, everybody eat more chips, but I'm going to be over here with my green juice. No, exactly. Um, and so I think, I think that was the first time I realized 
it, it wasn't necessarily about entrepreneurship, but it, it was more so realizing like, okay, I don't necessarily like fit in this world. And that was just the health and wellness aspect of it. But I did, I, I was kind of fortunate to work for people. And this is mentors, this is managers, my, my, even my VP, my first VP at Frito-Lay, um, who I still talk to um, to this day, that are very entrepreneurial in nature. So they weren't entrepreneurs because obviously they were in the big PepsiCo system um, or even at McKinsey, who, who I had plenty of partners at McKinsey who I worked for that were very entrepreneurial, but they figured out how to almost like rally the misfits. So like I got a lot of encouragement when I would have an idea. So I would, you know, I did this thing called the millennial minute where um, within the company, I would tell, you know, the, the older folks that worked at Frito-Lay and PepsiCo, what the millennial trends were and what apps we were using. This is back when like Snapchat was launching. I and like this is probably happening with Gen Z. It's like, what's the Gen Z minute? Yes. <laughs> Well, I have to get my, you know, one of my interns and then uh, my first full-time hire on the social design side, they're both Gen Z. And I have to ask, I'm like, what is this TikTok trend? Like, what? <laughs> You're the like, one asking for the minute meeting. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> I was like, is chuggy a cool word? <laughs> I was literally asking my team that at Future Commerce. They run the show for me here. I was like, guys, what is this joke on Slack about Chuggy? Like, what does that mean? And they're both like, oh my, they're all like, oh my God. <laughs> don't know what that means. And I'm like, yeah. It's so funny. Well, even like the influencers that we give to, I tend to like go the millennial route and I have to ask them. I'm like, hey, like, are these TikTokers cool? Um, so yeah, I'm no longer audience, cool. Maybe we have to explain, because I'm sure if they're anything like me, not knowing what chuggy means, they're probably <laughs> like, hello, Lee, can you just tell us what it means? So, <laughs> yeah, so they don't have to look up on you, Urban. Because I just learned, <laughs> so I don't want to screw it up. No, I mean, I, I think of it as like a form of basic. Like if you think of, uh, the, my, my favorite example is, like a live, laugh, love sign, you know, like people have those in their, oh, <laughs> in their right. houses. Yeah. I'm like, that is like the ultimate version of chuggy. Which means it's just not cool anymore, right? Like chuggy right. means you think it's cool, but it's actually not. So it's chuggy. Yeah. Well, and it's, it's almost like trying too hard. Like, mm. so someone there's, um, there's a really fun, I think he's a TikToker and Instagram um, personality that the other day was explaining things to millennials. And he said that friends is chuggy. And I was like, friends, <laughs> like, that's a great show. <laughs> Does that mean sex in the city is chuggy? Probably hundred percent. Anything with a, <laughs> with a reboot or like a comeback is chuggy. <laughs> wow. Wow. Like anything we grew up with, basically we're too old and it's like, Oh, yeah. you're all chuggy. Is that what that is? We that try means? too hard. We mm. try too hard with our filters and our pastel grids, and we just aren't cool anymore. Wow. Pastel grids are out too? Jeez. They're out. <laughs> what is happening? So where's the like website for everything not chuggy? I don't know. Um, I think it's it's like TikTok. It's like <laughs> well, yeah. All right. Well, that's that's interesting. So anyways, go on. So, you so I just thought I, I, um, I had a lot of, I would say, like mentors and supporters that kind of let me do whatever the hell I wanted to do. So though I was a misfit, I kind of made it work because I had people who would, and I try to do this with my team too, but like I had people who, when I had a crazy idea or I, when I wanted to be entrepreneurial, they would kind of push me towards that and let me do it. Um, but it was, I mean, it, it was at McKinsey when I was 
you know, I was working on the digital practice, which is a fairly new practice at McKinsey. And um, I was working on a very big client. And the work we were doing was entrepreneurial because digital was so new at the firm. But the client with the red tape and the like going through approvals and, you know, micromanaging like the tiniest copy that we wanted to put out there. That's truly when there's one client where I was like, all right, I need to go, I need to figure out like if I fit into the startup world because what I, like me by nature, I'm, and you you kind of meet those people and you kind of can tell, right? Like who is entrepreneurial by nature. I think it was just in my nature to be entrepreneurial. And I was almost like, I tried to fit into a box and tried to kind of fit around the red tape and it just wasn't working and it felt so forced. And when I, when I went to M13 after McKinsey, um, which is a venture capital firm here in LA, that's when I truly felt almost like liberated. Like I was like, oh, this is this is what good feels like. Like this is what I'm mm. supposed to be doing. Interesting. I felt the same way when I um, was at Launchpad. It was like, wow, look at all these founders. This is what I'm supposed to be doing. I'm like, yeah. I've always been a little on the crazy side, like trying to do impossible things all the time. But these people like are like me, you know, they're yeah. like cold calling and, you know, getting in front of people that other people are like, what are you doing? You want to meet? <laughs> they're like scrappy. They're yeah, like, they don't take no for an answer. Exactly. Exactly. It's... They don't take no. You're like, wow, these people are pretty bold. And that's exactly what I want to do. Um, that's interesting. So you were inspired basically by your experience. It sounds like you had like a startup 101 kind of education there as well, I'm sure. What were some of the takeaways um, that you learned at M13 about building a company? Yeah, so I, I interestingly, essentially built our venture studio there. So we had one side of the house that was kind of a traditional venture capital investment fund. And then the second side of the house is what we actually call Launchpad. So it's funny that uh, where you were was Launchpad, but yeah. <laughs> um, we ended up, it was um, a space theme at M13. So we called it the Launchpad. Um, and that's where we actually launched brands from within. So the first brand that we launched was a women's nutrition brand. Um, and that went through the entire kind of four-phased process that we built. So it sounds kind of structured, but it's actually what every startup kind of goes through. So phase one was ideation. So that's when you do a lot of the research, you look at Google Trends, um, you read reports, you see, you see kind of what is going on in the culture and then what the future looks like. Mm -hmm. um, so that's the ideation phase. And then the second phase is the testing phase. So that's where I think I had the most learning. And the, the learning there was just put something out there, like just try it. It doesn't have to be perfect. Um, and I think with consumer brands, you get caught up in, you know, this pristine, perfect brand. Um, and don't tell you know, anyone, you don't want anyone yes. to your idea. Don't get yeah, out there. Exactly. Yeah, perfect. And you want to have this. Yeah. yeah. And you want to have this like big launch. Like you're yes. like, Oh, I want to have, I want to build it up and I want to spend yeah. millions of dollars on this like insane launch and everyone's going to be talking about it. And it'll be, yeah. you know, I, I think that's this website and everyone's going to flock to it. Yes. <laughs> yeah. There's a wait list. There's like a 20,000 person wait list. Yeah. Um, so I think what I learned at M13 in that testing phase is just put something out there. And if people want it, they're going to want it. Like, yeah that's what product market fit is. Like, it doesn't matter if it's kind of ugly or if the logo isn't perfect or if the packaging isn't perfect. Like if they want it, they want it. And then 
The third phase is um, the accelerate phase, or sorry, the launch phase. So that's when you actually, you've gotten proof of concept in phase two. And the launch phase is where you actually kind of, you know, put your money where your mouth is, you make some investments, you hire a team, um, you need your product to be a little bit more, I would say perfected, still not perfect, but that's when you launch. And then the fourth phase is the accelerate phase. And that's kind of where you go from C to series A. Um, And that, that process is the exact process, not in the same kind of format and same with the same budgets, but the exact process I used to launch dough. Um, And it's kind of what every company, I'm sure if you talk to anyone, it's kind of a similar playbook. um, But that that's essentially I think the testing part is the most important part of it. But that's essentially the the process that we learned. For sure. I've had lots of interviews on here with lots of founders and this very similar playbook. Um, When you say testing, what are some things that you've done or that you would suggest to do to test an idea? Yeah. So what we did was probably highly illegal, but what we did was we launched on Instagram first. So we didn't have a website. I didn't because websites cost money, right? I didn't invest in any of that yet. Um, We didn't really have branding yet. Um, We launched an Instagram and we essentially said, uh, DM us to place an order and Venmo us. We changed our name to Dough Foods because there wasn't a business Venmo account yet. And we changed a little photo to a dough logo that we just created internally that was pretty janky looking. Um, and people would Venmo us $20 and place an order via direct message on Instagram. And it was like, unintentionally, I think it became cool because it was like hard to get. And it was kind of like an, if you know, you know, kind of thing. Um, so we, we, to initially get the word out, we seeded to a bunch of influencers by literally just cold reaching out. So we cold reached out to, and there were, I mean, there were so many that didn't respond, but there were so many kind ones that were like, this looks cool. It's cookie dough. It sounds delicious. It's healthy. Like, sure, I'll try it. And so yeah. we seeded to these influencers. They were obsessed with it. That was kind of test point one, right? Like, How, the, many, the, how many influencers did you seed the product with and I assume you mean just like gifted them maybe the product in exchange for them and you know talking about it on Instagram yeah so at the beginning it must have been like 10 to 15 it wasn't a lot um but it was enough to start the organic flywheel almost I hate that word flywheel it's such a buzzword but it kind of is true right like you they would post about it you it's so chuggy. <laughs> um, but they would post about it. Their followers would start following us, place an order, send it to a friend being like, you love cookies, you love cookie dough, or you're super into functional foods or wellness or whatever it is, check out this brand. And so that kind of got us going. Um, by our third drop, we called them drops, which is very like supreme of us. Mm-hmm. Um, but by our third drop, we were selling out in 30 minutes. It was wild. And so there was kind of the, of course, the quantitative metrics that you look at of, you know, sales and um, follower counts and, you know, engagement on our social posts. But then there's also this quantitative, almost like feeling that you get. It's almost like this like magic sauce that you can kind of feel like, yeah, this is going to work, you know? Mm. We'll get right back to our show, but first, a word from our sponsors. 
Malomo is on a mission to help brands create lasting relationships with their customers. Did you know that the average customer tracks their shipments around four to five times per order? And during Black Friday or Cyber Monday, that can sometimes double? That's a lot. Why not use that time with excited customers to drive sales and build your brand with a tool like Malomo? With Malomo, you can use branded shipment emails and order tracking pages to drive additional purchases by showing new products, sales, subscription options, and other engaging content simply by being proactive and managing delivery communications. Get 30% off your first three months with Malomo today by going to gomalomo.com slash CEO. That's G-O-M-A. L-O-M-O dot com slash stairway to CEO. Nosto enables e-commerce brands to deliver personalized digital shopping experiences at every touchpoint across every device. Designed for ease of use, Nosto empowers brands to build, launch, and optimize one-to-one omni-channel marketing campaigns and digital experiences without the need for dedicated IT resources or a lengthy implementation process. Leading brands in over 100 countries use Nosto to grow their business and delight their customers. As a Stairway to CEO listener, you can take advantage of an exclusive 10% discount off your first six months. Learn more or request a demo by going to nosto.com slash Stairway to CEO. That's N-O-S-T-O dot com slash Stairway to CEO. Cogsy empowers modern brands to be more agile and adaptive when it comes to their inventory. Leverage Cogsy's prioritization, predictive analytics, and automated purchase flow to always have the right stock on hand at the right time. Not only that, but Cogsy has an innovative plan B for those times when you do run out of stock. You can run back orders that keep customers happy and beat the conversion rate of back-in-stock notifications. Get your first two months free when you sign up by going to cogsy.com slash to CEO. That's C-O-G-S-Y dot com slash to CEO. So you're saying there's not really a number, it's a feeling product market fit. Um, I think it's a little bit of both. So there's, there's, so that was, I call that like phase one of our testing. Then we launched the website and there were pretty strict numbers. So there were, uh, you know, there was a conversion rate that I wanted to get to. I can tell you it was 5%. So if the conversion rate is 5%, we know that people are dying, which is very high if you ask any e-commerce person. Um, but we know that people are kind of dying for this product and we've got this initial set of, set of, um, cult consumers. There's, um, we had a revenue goal, um, for, you know, that we wanted to hit by December. Um, there's also, I, I read once, um, in, do you know what superhuman is the email app? Yes. So I believe it's a superhuman guys that said, if you do a survey afterwards, and the only question you ask is, um, would you be disappointed? And I'll probably butcher this, but would you be disappointed if this product didn't exist? Yeah. And the answer, or it's overwhelmingly yes, then that's the actual question you need to ask versus, you know, would you recommend this to a friend? Like, that's not actually the question you should ask. So, you know, there's methods like that when you send, send emails post-purchase and um, kind of understanding the feedback where that's quantitative and qualitative, but you can kind of get a sense of like, okay, there's, there's buzz here, but there are definitely, I mean, when it comes to like the typical D to C e-commerce metrics, like, yeah, there were conversion rates, there was click-through rates when we ran ads. Um, there was all of that. 
Yeah. I think that there's probably a video listed. I'm just trying to help some of the listeners if they actually want to try to find this because it's actually a great presentation. I saw him present, the founder of Superhuman presented at um, a launch festival. I think it was Launch Scale by Jason Calacanis. And mm. part of that um, presentation was him talking about this process. And, and it's a great, great insight and video. And I think it's probably online if they just Google um, founder of Superhuman and launch or Jason Calacanis, I'm sure they'll find it. Um, yeah. Cause yeah, you're right. That's a really, that's exactly. Um, it's a really awesome presentation. And like you said, that's how you should evaluate product market fit um, by asking that question. So you asked that question to your customers and what'd they say? Yeah, I mean, it was it was overwhelmingly. So I think the number that he gave, the founder of Superhuman, was uh, over 40%. Mm -hmm. And ours was like in the 70s to 80s. Wow. And so we were like, okay, at least with this initial cult, you know, and, and it's always easy. Everyone will tell you this. It's always easier to acquire customers at the beginning than it is, um, you know, later on because you get your kind of cult niche community. So I, and I, I think what's funny is I still thought of it as like a side thing. So like, even when we launched this in October of 2020, there was still something in the back of my head of like, you know, I can go back to consulting, you know, I can like, just in case this doesn't work. Yeah, there was, I, I think a little bit of it. And I mean, this, this is a little bit, I think, coming from um, being a female founder and, and other female founders I've chatted with, but it's almost this like imposter syndrome that happens where you know, things are going well, it's going well, you you can see the product market fit, you can see it's working, yet you're still kind of like, oh, like, what if it's not, right? And then December was really the month where, and it, it's a big gifting month, so our product did really well in December. But that's when I kind of like, it snapped for me where I was like, I almost had to like shake myself of like, you, you are experiencing imposter syndrome, it is going extremely well. You can see it in your revenue. We couldn't produce, we were producing in commercial kitchens. We were maxing out the commercial kitchens. I was producing until three in the morning, like myself. We had baker's assistants. Like we needed to get into a co-packer and a manufacturer ASAP. I think mm -hmm. that's when I was like, okay, this is real. Yeah. And I think it just took a second for me to, to almost like not doubt myself in that, even though, you know, the numbers, both quantitative and qualitative was there telling me like, this is it. We're, we're doing this, you know? I think it's totally normal, especially starting your, you know, a company for the first time, there's a lot of self doubt. What were some of those, you know, thoughts of self doubt that you've had to overcome? And how did you overcome them? I know the business did well, that's a great sign. But you know, yeah. from a personal perspective, yeah, I think so, you know, there, there was a really big kind of cloud with COVID, where I had this I had this fear that people were just looking for something during COVID. Mm -hmm. And so we would just be like this COVID novelty, like yeah. how tie dye sweatshirts were, <laughs> you know, like yeah. everyone wore the tie dye sweatsuits. I have like two of them, I think. Um, and I was worried that it was just this COVID novelty. And I, I think I had to get over that hump, which was step one, which obviously now that things are back open and our sales are better than ever is, is one. Um, and then I think there was a, a little bit of doubt in, because I'm a first time founder. Um, I think there was a little bit of doubt of, you know, I come from big company. I, you know, I've had my experience at M13. Like, can I really 
build this team and do this on my own. And so it was a test of almost like a lack of resources. And I think it'll always happen. I think that's, that's kind of part of what being, or the mental health struggle of being a founder of, you know, you almost feel like even when you achieve something, like we had our biggest day ever on June 29th and the team was freaking out. It was wild. The like, what Shopify looked like that day. Yet all I could think about was how am I going to top this? Like shit, we're doing so well. How am I going to top this? And I think there's this kind of like innate like a- achievement value that founders have and you automatically go on to the next thing. So I don't think that doubt ever really goes away, right? Like you mm-hmm. kind of just like figure out how to manage it um and you know do your little mental health hacks to to get over it, but it's it's kind of just like always living in there a little bit. So what are some of your mental health hacks? Um, so I started meditating. Um, and that for me, I was diagnosed with um, ADHD in my 20s, which is kind of unique. So from what my doctor told me is um, women often get diagnosed later. So uh, often men get or, you know, boys, young boys get diagnosed in grade school because they act out or they kind of like show signs of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and women tend to in grade school tend to be a little bit more well-behaved or like follow the rules um, and aren't kind of like the rowdy boys. Um, and so we kind of suppress that, that almost that, you know, feeling or, or need to be hyperactive or, or have kind of the attention disorder um, and I did really well in school. Like I was ranked number five in my high school. Like I, I did really well. So there wasn't, there, no one would ever think like, oh yeah, that girl has ADD, right? Um, well, you so, just said ADD, but then isn't there oh, a difference with ADHD? Sorry, ADHD, right. Yeah, um, no, there is a difference. Um, and I, you, there are other ways it comes out. So like I always had to work out or I always had to like do something active or I felt like I was like bursting out of my skin um and so that I mean there were signs like that or um I would fall asleep um if I had to focus for long periods of time I would fall asleep and I would need to like have some sort of movement like even right now when I'm talking to you I'm like walking around everywhere um (laughs) and so um that's all to say it's uh, what what was the original question (laughs) I don't know we got on the topic of ADHD. We were talking about mental health hacks. Oh, mental health. Right. So meditation for someone like me is really yeah. important. And even it's not even like a formal way of doing it, right? Like it's even like turning everything off and trying to focus like in your mind. And, you know, I kind of like replay Headspace. I don't use Headspace anymore, but I replay kind of the guy on Headspace telling you to flick your thoughts away. Um, and then working out is... Also, like I said, like I have this almost like I crawl out of my skin or almost like can't focus or function if I don't get that initial energy out. So um, I, I it's kind of a non-negotiable for me to work out, you know, call it five times a week. And it's purely for like, sure, I feel great physically, but it's purely for mental health. Mm-hmm. Um, I haven't picked up I'm my team. um there are a couple of folks on my team who journal and I haven't picked that up yet. I don't know that it's my way or like my form, but it's one that I'm, you know, the five minute journal. It's yeah. one that I'm kind of, kind of looking at that's around the corner. I think. Interesting. You have to try it out. Let me know how it goes. Yeah. <laughs> I'm still trying to figure out a hack 
haven't haven't really settled on one yet. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I know that you raised a million dollar seed round recently. You had a really awesome article on Forbes, and you have some incredible um, investors that a lot of them are founders, like the founder of Movement Watches, Jake, uh, Liquid IV, Brandon. Um, uh, even the CEO of Erwan. So can you talk about what it was like to raise that seed round and some of the challenges that you faced along the way? Yeah, so um, it's interesting because I, I said this to someone the other day and I think I had a, a unique experience fundraising because my experience was that it was really fun and like, a, like kind of seamless, which is not usually the founder experience from what I hear. Um, yeah when it when it comes to fundraising but i think i think the reason that happened is because we already had proof of concept so often you'll and you know this from being in that world like often people fundraise on just a deck i was actually giving advice to someone the other day who's um who has a food concept and she was asking me she was like oh my gosh like you you fundraised in like a week how did you do that and i was like well i had already launched the company you know, four or five months before I even had my first conversation. And so they saw the numbers that it was already working, right? So it was so much more de-risked for anyone that came in because we had the sales, we had the followers, we had the influencers and celebrities. We had even retail by then. We had, you know, we were in stores. And so I could tell them what the sales were like in the stores and what the repeat was. And so that raising when you've, you know, when you're a few months in versus raising just on a deck, a presentation, I think those are two very, very different things. Um, yeah, and so, it, I mean, it, I really, it yeah, it's interesting. I think a way maybe to frame it for those listening is, you know, investors really want to invest in the gas that you're going to put in your gas tank to keep yeah. you going and to accelerate things but you have to build the car yourself. And mm -hmm. if you can't afford to build it yourself, then you got to ask your parents, your friends, family fools, um, or, you know, whatever angel investors you can get your hands on to help you yep. buy the wheels and the engine and the doors. Cause otherwise, you know, it's really tough to just get um, any type of money for anything. Uh, if you don't have something, you have to put skin in the game and be very, very resourceful and scrappy to get mm -hmm. to a certain point until you absolutely can't take it any further, you know, um, and then you can start asking for money. But this whole idea, I don't know where this comes from of people thinking, I have an idea, I'm going to put together a pitch deck, and then I'm going to find yeah. investors. It's like, that is not the process here. It's like, beyond. This, you know? No, and I think a lot of people are starting to say no to that. And I think that's when, like, I, I joke that VCs are getting later and later stage. So like those VCs that, you know, we're investing in seed or pre-seed rounds are now only doing series A and series B rounds. And th that is true, but they also are just realizing like, you know, giving someone a million dollars on a deck um, is probably not the best use of, of their capital. So yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm totally with you. You have to have the proof points. And then of course, like when it comes to like the Jake's and the Brandon's of the world, it was a, a lot of the, the, money that they're putting into is into me as a human being and as a founder um they believe in the product like jake is obsessed with the product like he eats it every single day and so they're they obviously love the product um but at the end of the day if we have to for some reason pivot from our core product to something else they're believing that i i can do that so 
Um, <clears throat> I think, you know, obviously the having the the sound business to start and showing that you have product market fit, but then pairing that with a person who has the right experiences, the right personality, like w- what we were talking about being super resourceful and scrappy and just like not taking no for an answer. That's, that's also the other part of it. I just go back real quick on that investing on a pitch deck situation. I feel like that literally maybe happened t- over 10 years ago. Yeah. Very specific types of founders who had track records. I mean, obviously, if you sold your company, you did great, whatever, you can go to your current network of investors who will probably want to back you again off of a pitch deck that, that second time. But as a first time founder, it is not going to, it's so hard. Don't even try. Why try? Yeah. The barrier try? to building a company is so low now that it's mm-hmm. expected that you just can take it so much farther by yourself. Um, And that's the expectation now. So, um, so anyway, so you raised this amount of money, you've got these awesome investors, you hit, you're expecting to hit what a million dollars in sales in your first year. That's insane. That's insane. That's insane. So (laughs) I get nervous even like saying that, but that's, that's what we're on track to do. You can't be nervous. You got to be like, we're going to hit 2 million actually, but I got to manifest that shit, right? (laughs) I'm being conservative leave. Um, so as far as getting to 1 million in sales, like what are some tips and tricks? I mean, I know you started on Instagram. Mm -hmm. Um, what is part of that strategy to hitting a million? Yeah. Instagram is our home base. So though people might think it's chewy now, um, it is, it is where a lot of our consumer lives. I would say our consumers probably, you know, split between Instagram and TikTok. Um, we actually don't invest a ton in ads um, in Facebook and Instagram ads. We use them a lot for retargeting, but that's, I would say that's kind of the old guard um, just because it's, and it's, you have to do it, right? It's kind of a a requirement to um, as a marketing channel, but it's so expensive to run ads on Facebook and Instagram. um, And you're competing with so many more brands for, the screen time um, that we've just had to get a little more creative. Um, I would say the number one driver of our revenue has been relationships with influencers, personalities, celebrities, whatever you want to call them, um, and them genuinely loving the product. So the perfect example of that is, I don't know if you're familiar with Amanda Hirsch from Not Skinny But Not Fat. Okay. She's a podcaster. Um, uh-huh. So she's she's a podcaster, huge podcast. She's also got a ton of Instagram followers and just has a very engaged community. Um, she tried, we get to the product to her. Um, she has an insatiable sweet tooth. So she tried the product, was obsessed with it, sent me an email and said, can we do something? <laughs> like she didn't know what it was. She was just knew that she wanted to be involved. She's like, I just want to be involved in the brand. Like, I don't know what we do. Like, I just want to do something. So I, I outlined a couple of options for her. Like, I was like, well, like if you want to go real extreme, you could invest. Right. Um, but there's, <laughs> yeah, exactly. But we could, we could sponsor your podcast. We could do, you know, you know, we could do some sort of campaign. We could do a giveaway. There's a million other things. And then there's one that I was hoping that she would latch onto, and that was a collab flavor. And so we launched this flavor with her, first launched it in April, sold out in one hour. And then we launched it again, made 6X the amount, launched it again in June, sold out in 
five hours. Um, and it was, the reason is because it was such an authentic relationship. Like she genuinely loves the brand and the product and she and I have built such a good relationship. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's, it's interesting to consumers, right? Like it's, you know, a unique flavor. It's a unique function. She has a really great audience. The packaging is beautiful. Um, and you know, it's, it disrupted what is so hard to disrupt, which is social media. Um, and so that sort of relationship, I would say has, uh, has been kind of integral. Like that's one example, but having those relationships with these folks has been just super integral to our growth. Um, and then of course there's the retail component. So you're familiar with Erwan. I don't know if your listeners are familiar with Erwan in Los Angeles but it is a very good discovery platform. So often I'll see people posting on, you know, Instagram or even doing a TikTok. And I'm like, how did they, like a person that is a personality, I'm like, how do they find us? And I, because I know everyone that we gift to, like I see it in, yeah. you know, in our gifting log. Um, and I figure out that they picked us up at Erwan because that is just like such a, a spot for people who are into wellness and who, yeah are trying to discover something new. Mm -hmm. um, so that has actually been a really good, you know, I would say marketing driver, if you will. It's obviously a retail sales channel, so we make money off right. of it, but it's also a really good way to kind of get into people's hands. Yeah, it's definitely a store to discover awesome product. I'm there all the time, really love that place. Um, but speaking of your product, it is amazing. I have it here actually right in front of me. Uh, oh. I have the um, chocolate hazelnut. It's the nut butter, enhanced nut butter, and it literally tastes like Nutella. Right. I'll have to hide it from my husband because he's from <laughs> Germany and literally loves Nutella, like the original. Yeah. Um, yeah. But this is gluten free and it's so good for you, but it doesn't even taste healthy whatsoever. It tastes like so legit. And even the enhanced cookie dough tastes like real cookie dough. Like I, it doesn't, it's like in this container and you don't think it's going to taste like the real thing. And it really does. It's kind of wild, right? Yeah. It's really I mean, so that's, shocking. It's, it's funny because, so one of my mentors who invested in dough is the VP of innovation at Kind Bar. And we were chatting when I was first concepting it. And what she said just stuck with me. And it was, people eat Kind Bars because they taste really delicious. Like, mm -hmm. sure, they're healthy, right? They're made with nuts. They're better for you. They're cleaner. But they're kind of a better for you candy bar. You know, yeah, like they taste delicious. Exactly. They've got chocolate. They've got glaze. They've got sea salt. Like, they're delicious. And that's the thing that I think, you know, is, is just such a core value to us is sure it can be healthy, but if it tastes like cardboard or kale, like nobody wants to eat that if it's a dessert. So, right. you know, kind of marrying the, the, the two of, I, I call it like hedonistic health, right. But it's healthy and clean, but it's delicious. And I think that's kind of the, the fundamental, I would say the, the core value of, of our product strategy. And the packaging is really cute. And you even send a golden spoon, which really we makes do. me want to have gold silverware <gasps> for some reason. I'm like, oh my God, right? It's pretty cool looking <laughs> gold spoon. I'm like, I wish I had the rest of my, you know, maybe you just start getting into silverware and just like have all gold and just sell that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Have things you can eat with forks and I just send the whole set, you know. No, but it's a really amazing product. So how long did you spend in R&D to come up with these amazing flavors? Like how much 
uh, perfecting did you have to do? Yeah, so we originally, I would say we were in like May, June of COVID, we were playing around with the idea. And then we were like, okay, let's just start, you know, formulating. Let's see. And I'll, by the way, I am horrible in the kitchen. Like my husband cooks. He, I like chop his onions. Like I'm not good at the kitchen at all. I'm the same um, way. <laughs> so it's wild that I was like making this product myself early on. Cause, and I also don't follow rest, like I don't follow, instructions and so um following recipes is very hard for me so yeah it's wild that we got through that phase um but we essentially we would create a version of it and then we had kind of these like attributes that we would like like taste texture sweetness there's just a number of attributes that we would kind of rate it on um and we would keep iterating on it until we got to, we went through the whole alphabet. So it was like A, B, C, D. And then we went all the way through. We were at A, 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 B, A, C. So we went through the alphabet and then I think a half. And then finally we were like, okay, this is it. And we started with chocolate chip because we knew that was going to be the number one flavor. So we started with chocolate chip. We were like, built this base and we can then, you know, expand it to others and it won't be that difficult. Um, and so we then actually did this Google form um, survey of people in LA and we just sent it to friends and friends of friends and they forwarded it along. And we said, put in your address, we're going to drop off free cookie dough samples to you as long as you fill out this survey for us. And so then we dropped off, you know, that iteration of product. We got all the feedback, incorporated the feedback, and then we did it again. So that was kind of the initial, it was very, and we were in the middle of COVID. So we couldn't like see each other, see anyone in person. So we would just like do these little drop-offs to people's apartments or, or houses. Um, and that was how we got our initial feedback um, and kind of started with that chocolate chip flavor. Amazing. I just tried a little dip of the of the peanut butter chocolate chip cookie dough here. I'm it's mm -hmm. like hilarious why I like put myself on mute so I can eat cookie dough. Uh, <laughs> but it's so good. Thank you so much for sending these. It's um oh my gosh, of course. Really amazing. So I want to hear more about like hiring. Like well, how big is your team now and what has it been like kind of creating your team? Well, we're stacked now. We um we were a lot of part-timers when we first started. Um so I actually just brought on a director of product ops who does everything from helping with product development to kind of the supply chain ops side. Um, I've got a director of um, sales who's part-time. So she comes from Bonza, actually Bonza Pasta. Um, so she's got a lot of experience in, in retail sales and grocery and the natural channel. Um, and she's just going to be part-time with us. Um, and then I've got a director of marketing who um, I've worked with previously, who was also part-time and just brought him on full-time, but um, he will help with everything e-commerce and, and growth related. And then I've got an intern on, she's the Gen Z intern that I told you about. She's the one that's really cool and makes our TikToks. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then I've got um, Cameron, who is the heart and soul of the brand. Um, and she's um, all things social and design. And she and I early on, she was in school at the time. So she was at UCLA, um, an undergrad. And she and I kind of hit it off right away. But we also kind of understood each other and kind of riff off of each other for the brand. Um, so she's truly like the brand voice. She's the brand aesthetic. Like she just gets it. She's kind of like witty and funny. Um, and is, I would say like the heart and soul of like the design and the copy. Nice. 
So tell us about one of your most challenging moments in building the company. I know you're still in the very early phases. I think you're only like 10 months old here, but what has been one of the most challenging things so far? Yeah, so I would say the first the first kind of major challenge was when so you only have a certain number of hours a day, right? So I was spending so many of those hours making the actual product, which a lot of food and beverage, maybe less beverage, but a lot of food founders will tell you that's what you do. You start in your kitchen and then you go to a commercial kitchen and then you max out the commercial kitchen. You may add on another one. And then and only then do you go to a co-packer because the minimum quantities for a co-packer are so high that you can't, you know, unless you have the demands, you can't quite possibly, you know, meet those MOQs. So um, the the biggest struggle early on, this was probably when we had like December, was the debate on running the business versus making the product. So, you know, you spend six to eight hours a day making the product. And then after that is when you can actually like answer customer emails, figure out what to post on Instagram, you know, fix the website. Um, do all of those things that that it requires to run a D2C business. And so I think, you know, that maxing out of that capacity was a was a real struggle and then when we first got into our co-packer, there's a huge learning curve when you get into one of those. Like we had a lot of wasted product. We had to throw out um batches of our brownie batter, we had to throw out batches of our ginger doodle product. Um and it hurt we'll throw out. We donated it, but it, it hurts to do that because you're like, well, this product isn't like that bad. Like, will it be okay? But you know, it. why don't we just try yes. to sell it anyway? Why don't we just try to sell it? Right. Because it will sell the first, like if people, when, as people were finding out about the brand, they would have bought it, but they just wouldn't have repeated. And I think I had, and we were selling it actually for a few weeks, both of those products. And I had this you know, come to Jesus. I'm not even religious, but come to Jesus. <laughs> and I, I was like, I wouldn't repeat if I tasted this. I would not repeat by this product if I tried this. And I knew that's when we had to make the call and it was thousands of dollars. Like we had to make the call to donate this product. And so it hurt initially, especially because we hadn't fundraised yet. Um, and so we didn't have that cushion and it was our, it was like my own money. Um, and it hurt, but I think in the long run for the business, we have a really strong repeat rate. And if I know after tasting something, someone's not going to repeat that, there is no way in hell I should be selling it. And those are just the, I would say the problems that come with starting up production. And you kind of have to just allocate spend to that kind of waste almost. Yep, absolutely. What's something you wish you would have known before you started your business? Um, I, it's funny because at the beginning of it, I was so, I was so doe-eyed when, you know, when things, when like a celebrity would post, I would get so excited over the moon. Like, I'd be like, my job here is done. <laughs> like, this is amazing. And then when things would go wrong, like a la the throwing out product or donating the product, I would have these kind of like very low lows. And I think I knew this because I came from venture to manage almost like to have a sense of stoicism to manage those high highs and manage the low lows. But I think it takes practice and it takes reps to be able to have all of those high highs and have the low lows. And you have to go through them to kind of then even out and, and stay even keeled. So I just wish I had, you know, more reps of that because 
then the, the journey wouldn't have been as almost like emotional as it as it was or as it is yeah. still you know absolutely i think resilience is uh, a muscle that we need to build work to build it's not a natural thing i think resilience is something that takes time to learn and adjust to mm -hmm. um and over time build so yeah it's interesting that you've experienced that and you kind of saw and knew that from like an intellectual perspective but yes then in it it's totally different <laughs> yeah you know how you logically know how yeah. you should it's like when you have a, you know a toxic ex you know you should break up with them but you just don't <laughs> oh no that's another <laughs> podcast we have to have <laughs> um so in terms of being a leader, you know, starting and growing a business involves a lot of professional and personal growth. How have you grown, I guess, personally as a leader? Yeah, I think in bigger organizations, the the energy and kind of the almost the this is very LA of me, but the vibe that you set for the organization is not dependent on one person, right? Because it's so big, you know, you're at a 500 person company or even an M13, you know, you're at a 50 person company and you can kind of slack off a little bit on the culture front and it's okay. I think what I've had to teach myself over the last couple of months is like the energy of dough comes from me, right? So like, if I am not in a good mood, then my team is not gonna be in a good mood and they're gonna be less motivated. So it's almost like, training yourself to be a coach versus a player and mm -hmm. you know you can be in leadership positions at, at bigger companies but you're still kind of a player because you're not it, it all kind of works together but when you kind of think of yourself as a coach and yanni actually yanni from lemon perfect who's the founder of lemon perfect he kind of taught me this early on he invested in dough um, but he is a coach so he coached harvard basketball and my first conversation with him it was the most motivating conversation I had ever had. I was like, holy shit, I'm like on top of the world after talking to that guy. Um, and that like that coach mentality, I think that's when the flip switched of, oh, I need, I need to be this for my team. Like I need to do what he does. I need to do what a coach does to motivate my team to kind of have that energy and build that culture. And so I think that that kind of mindset shift, it's been like, it's, it's been a stretch for me. So like, you know, when I have an off day, I have to kind of put it to the side and, and still coach and still, um, you know, realize that, you know, my team needs that, that motivation and that energy. And so I've kind of like stretched myself, I would say in that way. Yeah, that's really great advice to think of leadership as a coach versus a player um, and to be that coach for your team. That's really important. Um, so what's next for Doe? What can we expect? Ah, uh, um, well, hopefully conquering retail. I'm super excited. I mean, that's part of the reason we fundraised is, um, is to expand retail. So we're, we're 80% direct to consumer right now, 20% retail. I think by the end of year two, that'll be completely flipped. Um, so I'm hoping I don't want to jinx anything, or I guess we can call it manifesting. I'm hoping we'll have a tentpole retailer. So call it a, a Whole Foods or a Sprouts or, um, you know, one of the, the tentpoles by the end of this year. Um, and then we'll, we'll go from there. So, um, I I'm, I'm hoping we'll expand retail quickly so people can go. It's almost like ice cream where ice cream is an impulse purchase. So you, you, you know, you get your eggs, you get your milk, you, you know, get your staples and then you might grab that kind of ice cream on your way out. 
Um, I think cookie dough is similar. So I think, you know, once we're in retail, it'll just, um, it'll take off. Yeah, definitely. And so before we wrap up here, what kind of final advice do you have for those who are tuning in? I mean, if, you know, there's a lot of listeners that are thinking of starting their first company, maybe taking a leap into entrepreneurship. Um, Mm -hmm. What would you say to them? Um, I don't know if this is helpful advice, but I would say just start. It doesn't proceed with caution. No. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Don't do it. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Um, I would say just start. Like it's, we want everything to be perfect. We want to have the perfect brand and the best website. And, you know, we want everything to be um, pristine. And I think there's advice that I received that was, if you're not embarrassed of your first product, then you're not doing it right. Like you, I am fully embarrassed. We we were in peanut butter jars and we had a sticker on the top that said dough. It was the jankiest thing ever. It looked like, like it, it would have never been sold in retail. Um, so if you're not embarrassed of it, then you're not doing it right. Just, just put it out there and just start because I think we build up this inertia, um, of a concept of an idea that we sit on for, you know, months and years, and we sit on this concept, and we never really do it. And it's like, just go start, it doesn't have to be perfect, or at least test, you know, get yes, to phase at least two. test. Yeah, get yeah. the idea to phase two, and then figure it out from there. Yeah, exactly. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Sabina, for being on the show today. It was so fun talking to you and um, best of luck with everything. And thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you, Lee. Have a good one. Thank you so much for listening to the Stairway to CEO podcast. Once again, I'm your host, Lee Green. And if you have any burning business questions, please feel free to reach us at www.stairwaytoceo.com. We'd love to hear from you. And if you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe to the show, tell your friends, leave us a review, and follow us on Instagram at Stairway to CEO. Until next time, guys, keep on climbing. Thank you.